0: Fellow Knowledge Seekers, I hope you've had a chance to listen to the Waterline Podcast on iTunes or in your Android Podcast app. People ask me all the time, Shane, what's the future look like? Are we going to flourish? Are we are, are we going to drive ourselves to extinction? Are we going to destroy everything? Are we going to create heaven on earth? A big part of that incredibly complicated question is water. Water is absolutely fundamental to life. And knowing what is going on with water, the various technologies, the economics, political, social, behavioral, technological, and environmental aspects of water around the globe is really fundamental to understanding questions like that. And if you guys are into science and learning about things that affect our lives and the world, which I know you are, I believe the Waterline podcast is free. For you I just finished a episode called water for all regulation all about comparing the different regulations in different areas like the Israeli water law passed in 1959 and comparing how their system of, of regulating water compares to California's model of regulating and how We might work together to figure out the best pros and the cons of different systems all around the world. Very, very important stuff. Please check out the Waterline podcast on your Android app and at the iTunes store. Very excited, everybody. The company I've been working with, Laughable, officially launched Laughable 2.0. It is now up. I've been talking about it on the podcast uh, a few times here, and, and I'm very excited that it is out and available. So just, to le- just like on any other podcast app, you can subscribe to podcasts. That's great and everything. Very handy, but uh, every app does that. What makes Laughable special um, in this particular regard it has uh, many other benefits as well but what makes laughable special is that it allows you to subscribe to individuals i think this is one of the better features sometimes people um i've have, i have some fans out there that uh that um listen to the here we are podcast but sometimes like to hear me as a guest on other shows because i kind of uh take on a a different role and i'm just a, a little bit um being a guest is different than than being a host and so that's a good way to find when i'm going to be on things but just any other um comedian out there that you're into this is uh this is how you find good comics this is how most people um that are our fans have found me you heard me on on pete holmes podcast or burt kreischer's podcast or uh you know Joe Rogan or whatever it might be Um, that's where a lot of the listeners came in from and imagine how many more listeners I'd have if everyone in the world was using a laughable app because you heard me and you were like oh I like this guy's take or whatever um, whatever it was about the episode that clicked with you and you wanted to hear more about what I was doing and so you did research and you looked me up. And you found my podcast, and you subscribed. Laughable cuts all of that process down into one little step. You go, oh, I liked that guest. Click subscribe. You hear that guest to whichever comics you're into. It um, anytime they're a guest or a host, it it will pop up automatically. It will surface onto your feed and I think that is incredible so if you go to iPhone um, or if you have an iPhone go to laughable.com and if you have an Android you can go to laughable.com and be notified when the version is out for Android but uh, all you iPhone users out there are uh, are able to download it right away and don't worry Android users I am an Android user and I am uh, I'm pushing them to get the Android version out as soon as possible so yeah enjoy a laughable
1: are we yes where are we here why are we
2: here not entirely clear we are misfits thrust into existence by random chance with no hints at all as to how we're supposed to make sense of it all it's immensely bizarre here we are
0: With your host, Shane Moss, everybody. Here he is, Shane Moss. Uh, thank you. Thank you guys very much for coming. Um, how about a hand for the Bohemian Beer Garden for hosting uh, this event. I'm going to stand for a second, actually. Um, how many of you have... No idea what's about to happen right now. You have no idea what the Here We Are podcast is and you team anyway, awesome. Got some new fans, I love that. How many of you, uh, have, so the rest of you, how many of you have heard the Here We Are podcast? Whoa. Nice, um, well, thanks for coming out. And this is, as you know, um, this is a live recording, so try to keep the table talk down and all that. But for those of you that don't know, uh, I've been traveling around um, the last two and a half years of my career as a stand-up, looking up um, professors that do things that interest me in various regions, uh, wherever I'm traveling to, and I invite them on my show. Usually, I go to uh, to their uh, their office or their home or whatever and, and ask them all about their research, but just this year, I started doing some more live events to get the audience more involved so you guys can ask your questions as well, and we can have a little more fun and and play around with that. And so I have a, uh, a couple of really awesome guests for you guys tonight. We're going to be talking about um, kind of how we how we process meaning and well being, and um, kind of how we find happiness in life. So you know nothing of interest. Um, but um, but I have I have two fantastic guests for you, and I'm also going to kind of. We'll dig into a little more of what they do um, in a moment, of course. But just uh, we're just going to give them a brief intro to get them on stage. These are two associate professors of marketing um, who are also trained in psychology and from UC Boulder. And so please welcome Lawrence Williams and Peter McGraw, everybody. <laughs> Thank you guys for joining me. The comic, um, the comic has beer. I have two <laughs> beers no, and then there's two have water. Professors, yeah. Um, all right. So yeah. Um, I think. By the way, um, uh, we're just gonna edit out this this 10 seconds here. But can everyone? Let's just do a sound check just to make sure. Can everyone hear? Um, okay, right
1: now. Okay, yeah. Yeah.
0: yeah. Can what, you what's hear? That? A
3: little distant.
0: A little distant. Should we use the microphones? Maybe we, should, maybe we should actually pick them up. You want to? Yeah. Uh, is this much better? Um, Peter? Does that work better? Yeah. 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 Testing one, two, three. Okay. <laughs> you know what? Yeah. Keep talking for a second sure. just to make sure. Uh, all right. Say something.
4: I'll start um, reading my dissertation aloud. <laughs> is that is that, that was a long time thing? ago, Pete. It was, and it, didn't, it wasn't bad. It never got published, uh-huh. actually. So it's an especially bad read in this way. All right.
0: Okay. Um, okay. All right. Thank you. Um, so, just to uh, just to kind of introduce um, the the show and the guests a little bit better, um, I I started doing this uh, years ago. I started getting a little more interested in um, in science, uh, and I had always kind of uh, read a few science books here and there, and just became increasingly more interested in life sciences. And I started reaching out to um, various professors and authors and stuff. And this is how I met, um, uh, Peter, who's one of my oldest friends in academia. He's such a good friend. He's actually letting me crash at his place in Boulder, <laughs> <That's true>. uh, <laughs> reluctantly. <laughs> he, he, he told me, he just told me, um, about 30 minutes ago that he's not going to be sad when I leave tomorrow, <laughs> He's not going to be happy either, so he just kind of lets me crash, uh, and he's indifferent about it. Um, so we've just kind of had this relationship for, uh, <laughs> for several years. So anyhow, so I started, I started hanging out with um, some various academics and had some of the most interesting conversations um, of my life, and I thought I should have been recording that um, because that was so interesting, and I bet other people would find it interesting as well, and that's how the here we are podcast. he started you know what's interesting is i've had the most interesting conversations in my
4: life, not with academics
0: but rather with comedians yeah yeah so so Peter actually um, one of his things is is uh, he studies humor actually has a humor research lab uh, so at the exact same time, Peter was starting to study um, comedy, I was starting to do comedy about science, and so we were meant to be. Um, and it, yeah, I know. That's we're gonna st- do that genetic testing and <laughs> how related we are, probably. Um, and he has a book called *The Humor Code*. Peter, could you talk a little bit about? Uh about what you do yeah so I'm uh, oh and by the way um, Peter has been a guest on the show twice before and so in case you're wondering why like when when Peter went on stage there's a few ladies like flashing and that sort of thing is because they're big fans of the show uh, <laughs> I'm glad
4: the lights are bright I did not see that um, yeah so I, I'm i as, as Shane said I'm, I'm um, trained as a, as a psychologist, sometimes I describe myself as a behavioral economist or a behavioral scientist, which makes a little bit more sense to normal people. Um, and I study emotions and decision-making, and about nine, actually around nine years ago, right around now, I, I stumbled on this question of what makes things funny, and have been doing a, lion, a lion's share of my research on that, on that very fun and, uh, and obviously important topic.
0: Um, can we go out and have them uh, turn off the police cars too this is a live recording and it's just I mean yeah Boulder isn't supposed to have the, those kinds of noises happening um, I, I have a story about the police in Boulder just
4: real quick yeah yeah I had I called I, I, had to call the, I called the cops once because someone was taking pictures of my house Um <laughs> What happened was I was eating (laughs) breakfast and someone drove down the street, rolled down their window, and as they slowly drove down the street, they took photos of my house. Then they pulled in my driveway to turn around and I walked out onto the front porch like, what the fuck? (laughs) And then I came back in, I called a buddy of mine. I was like, the weirdest thing happened. And I just described that. And he goes, eh, you should just call the cops. And I was like, Okay, so I called the cops, police officer came, asked me a bunch of questions, and then the next day I received a phone call with a customer satisfaction survey about my experience with the with the Boulder Police Department. Really? I'm not making this up. Yeah. Oh man, this is the whitest
0: town in the world. (laughs) Amazing. And it's a marketing. How did you enjoy your arrest? Would you would you
4: refer the Boulder Police Department to a friend? You know, like, <laughs> yeah.
0: seriously, it was so weird. I, 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 when, when the shoe gets like a four-star review, very comfy, cozy beds. Um, I found the isolation a bit much. Um,
5: <laughs> um, none, none of my police stories end that way. <laughs> Is there going to be a picture associated
4: with this on the on the website for, uh, uh, for yeah. The listeners? Uh, yeah, for, for listeners. Oh, okay.
5: oh sorry, it's, it's because I'm black. That's yeah. Why I'm black.
0: <laughs> <laughs> if you could say that after everything for the whole rest of the night, that would be amazing. <laughs> Just it's an audio thing, so yeah.
1: You
0: know. uh, <laughs> I'm white, by the way, listeners. <laughs> Um, yeah, P- Pete and I are uh, the whitest um, totally people right out there, and that's why we often get mistaken as twins. Um, <laughs> Lawrence, um, can you share a little bit about, what you, and, and one, just because you've never been on the show before, maybe just a little bit of a history of how you got into doing what you're doing as well.
5: Uh, certainly. So, I decided that I wanted to be a professor when I was 16. Um, I didn't know exactly what I would study, but that was kind of a life goal. Pete suggested that I mention my schooling, so I went to Harvard for undergrad, I went to Yale for grad school. I actually told
0: Pete, I was like, you should say that for him, so he doesn't have to brag about it. Uh, This this is is one of the uncomfortable problems with going to both Harvard and Yale, is when you tell people that, they're
5: like, fuck
1: off,
0: couldn't. I really couldn't decide,
4: so I just went to both of them.
5: I think you can hear the humility in my voice. Um, But in any case, I'm a psychologist by training. I'm interested in understanding the sort of unconscious, non-conscious, subconscious, these hidden influences on what we do, what we choose. And that led me to marketing. So I'm, like Pete, a consumer behavior researcher, like Pete, I want to understand uh, why people make the choices they do, how their feelings impact their decisions, um, how sort of the environments in which we find ourselves, the sort of nature of those environments influence what we choose, and how satisfied we are things along those lines. I actually feel like uh, marketing is one of
0: the sort of the origins uh, of the I mean, I mean Freud is certainly credited for uh, f- for kind of discovering the subconscious world or whatever, but but there there's been, there's been people figuring out tricks um, to, to get kind of in people's psychologies and to, and to figure out how to sell people stuff for a very long time and how to get laid. I suppose that was the oldest one.
4: Yeah, so I think, well, I, the, part of the reason that, that um, academics like us end up in, in um, business schools in part is because they're very real world problems. Like, so you, you move from the theoretical into the applied, which is, I think, more fun. Um, some of it is, is just there's more of an interest there, so there's jobs available there. and so They, could, they also pay more. They, they do that too. Um, <laughs> which is honest, yeah. Um, as someone who studies decision making, that gets away. But um, the, yeah, this goes back to, uh, you know, there's this kind of people have heard the story about subliminal advertising, a movie theater, flash, these like very fast. Pictures of popcorn and Coca-Cola and these stories of people leaving their seats to go to the refreshment bar to fill up on those kinds of things were attempts or at least alleged attempts of, um, of marketers trying to influence us. Yeah, did that actually just...
5: happen? No, no, that did not happen. That's, that was a, a huge fraud, um, but thankfully it was a fraud that started me on my career, so I'll take it. <laughs> uh,
4: and actually there have been some research um, more recently that tries to look at that Does can that happen? Can you actually change someone's behavior by flashing logos of brands um, and the, so the results are actually I think n- not terribly scary so the, the short answer is yes you can but um, two things need to be present one is there actually has to be this goal so the, the subjects in, in this study were, were um, who were influenced were actually thirsty, so they had, a thir- they, they had a need to actually already fulfill. And then, like, um, flashing images of, like, Lipton iced tea led them to subsequently choose amongst, among a, a bunch of beverages to choose that iced tea more often. But this is a very carefully controlled experiment where people are at a computer forced to watch things and, and engage in this. The, the likelihood of these things can happen in the real, life, in real world seems rather distant unlikely, at least at this seems like seems to be at this stage.
0: If you're already thirsty, maybe someone can guide you
4: into getting a maybe. Yeah, actually, you know, really the I think the interesting thing about advertising, everybody's sort of scared of subliminal advertising. There's there's really little evidence that, that it has any real world effect. But what does have real world effects is is the advertising that you actually see. Like so seeing a Nike swoosh a million times in your life Actually leads you to like Nike more than um, than you might anticipate.
0: They are pretty great. And sponsors. <laughs> like, well, here we are. About this. <laughs> uh, <laughs> they haven't paid me yet. I'm just hoping. Yeah, uh, exactly. Um, so, well, I mean, it, it, even if say say um, something in marketing does gain this advantage, uh, isn't there there's some kind of this. Uh, Red Queen effect, where, which happens in kind of all of life, where where a predator figures out a trick to catch up with the prey a little easier, and then the, the prey that survive end up figuring out tricks to get away from the predators, and so on and so forth, and it kind of ends up back where it started. Um, aren't there these things, like, take for example um, the internet, the computer uh, comes out and, and an ad flashes on the screen. It's flashing. That'll get people's attention. And then after a while, and it does at first, and then after a while people learn to almost ignore the the flat, now it has almost the opposite effect. Or someone
4: invents an ad blocker because they're so annoyed by that ad. Yeah, yeah.
5: Yeah, exactly, I was going to say the best way to not be impacted by that stuff is is to not be there or to uh, close the door, so to speak. So um, yes, we have defenses. Um, Those defenses are not perfect, Um, but we also have ingenuity Say to build ad blockers. To
0: ad blocker plus, by the way, couldn't <laughs> recommend it enough. It, it is solid, honestly. Uh, that, the Nike thing was a
5: joke. Ad blocker plus. That is. That's the real sponsor. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so yeah, and in, in my work, I find it fascinating this uh, the sort of divide between what people think they have control over, uh, what they actually have control over, and then the situations where it's really the environment is going to dictate what you do. Um, and, and you have very little say in, in your outcomes. It's more like an illusion.
4: Can you give an example of that?
5: Uh, well, there are a bunch of people right now in this bar. Mm-hmm. Um, the, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, Choosing what to consume is going to be a, a function of what's available in this environment. I'm guessing beer. Uh, perhaps. I don't know. Is that the specialty here? <laughs> Is it it a beer garden?
4: Um, Spelled differently, but yes. (laughs) And Shane, you can take a break. We'll just take it from here for a while. (laughs) I'm just watching the stuff. I'm enjoying it.
5: Um, so like we we have this sense, this uh, sort of very natural sense that we are in control of our destiny, that we are making our choices, and we're we're sort of motivated to to downplay the influence of environments on our outcomes. We're too hard on ourselves? <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, <laughs> well, well par- partially that as well. And I, I, we were talking before the, the, that is, that was not the smooth transition into it, but you had some interesting ideas about how, how uh, because, um, well, I'll, I'll let you explain it, basically because we feel like we have all of this control when things don't go our way we uh, we might be beating ourselves up more than it's necessary.
5: Yeah, that was a good job of explaining it. Yeah. And that's exactly what he said. <laughs> and so, so there's that.
0: <laughs> so, uh, so now now we can all just kick our feet up and we don't have to worry about it. Look, if it's meant to happen, it'll happen. Well, like I think like this, this situation
4: is you you end up overeating, and you feel you feel full, you feel terrible, you didn't want to do that, and it's easy to go. I'm a horrible
5: person. Like, I have no willpower, I have no self control. Exactly. Instead of uh, thinking about, you know, humans and sugar affinity and, and sort of the reasons why we're motivated to um, consume so many calories and the fact that our environments are, are structured in this way that make caloric consumption infinitely easy, just we're not. Biologically prepared for things like pops hearts, for things like <laughs> giant pretzels, like the the sort of the, the problem of Buffets. humanity. Yeah, but buff- that's it's absurd. So um, I always say that we're we're really great at engineering um, these these beautiful uh, calorie delivery machines, um, and then when we succumb to that, we get upset with ourselves. But really, it's just a structure of the environment. It's the fact that. We, we made Oreos. It's not that we, we are horrible. Yeah, I've been trying to loosen
0: up a little. I sometimes give myself a hard time about some of my habits, but then I'm like, you know, if the beer wants to go down my throat, it's going to go down my throat. You know? What am I supposed to do about it? <laughs> so, uh, well, uh, so I mean, uh, the, the reason why I make a silly joke about it is is, it is impossible to figure out how much of this life is free will and how much is, it? And, and I think you could you could take someone like me who probably leans toward the side of uh, that all of this consciousness is just us observing these things that we don't understand as opposed to, well, I'd say most people or certainly the environment that I was raised in, the people I was raised were just kind of, you take life at face value and uh, and I think that, that the two extremes are probably somewhere in the middle right, so how, how do you how do you test such a thing? How do you figure out um, what choices of ours are actually influencing our decisions and what's just kind of being primed by our environment? You want to do that one? <laughs> I mean, yeah, that's
4: I don't you know, I don't think you can, you're never gonna go, oh, it's 42%. Like I don't think that's gonna science can't do that. What ends up happening <clears throat>
1: excuse
4: me, is uh you end up creating well, I, what's really interesting is the way a lot of this started and um, the, the sort of foundation of social psychology um, really looks at this disconnect between what people assume is to be the case, which is that, that our behavior, our actions fundamentally reflect who we are and our own agency, with this countervailing view which is that context matters a lot. And so the foundation of social psychology was just to show that context matters way more than anyone thinks that it does in that sense. So it, the, the goal is never to sort of figure out what is the right sort of breakdown of it, but at first is just to show that context matters, right? So these are there's like these classic studies using um, like uh, seminary students, right? So I don't know if you guys notice this, but like, you know, around eight in the morning, everybody drives like a, like a fucking maniac, you know? And, um, and you're just like, why are people such jerks in the morning? You know, like, um, and it's just because they're late for work. You know, it really fundamentally, what it goes down, goes down, like people with children in their car will drive over other people's children <laughs> because they don't want to be late for school. And is it because they're bad people? No, it's just because they're just focused on their children. And so, like, this study looks at these seminary students who are going to give, um, they're going to give a sermon of the, um,
5: what's the... Like the Samaritan? The Good or...
4: Samaritan. They're going to tell the, the, the Good Samaritan story. And in the experiment, what they do is they basically send these, these Samaritan, these, excuse me, these seminary um, students down the street to go give this sermon about giving to the less fortunate and so on. And they plant, probably a grad student, has like, uh, you know, in the in the alley, in like sort of hunched over, kind of groaning, and then they just measure whether the.
0: I like that they didn't just get a fucking homeless
4: person for the Why know, not just pay a homeless person yeah. to be the homeless? I, actually, person. I know why. I know I it was a. Uh, this was in Prin- this was in Princeton, New Jersey, so they they, no you know, people, know. they weren't uh, they were. No, I think how uh, human subjects wouldn't let you do that. Yeah, yeah. but um. What they varied was how late the, the seminary student was. And then they measured whether the, the person actually stopped and say, hey, sir, are you OK? And what they found was when the, person, when the seminary student was late, they almost never stopped for this person who might be in need. And it's like, these are the very same people. You know, the context is the same. You know, actually, what, you know, what they're thinking about in, internally is about being a good person. And here's this little thing, just how late you are, can have this huge effect on behavior.
0: Yeah, I mean, there's a million, as a comedian, um, even, even if you don't, uh, if you, even if you aren't interested in reading this stuff, you can ask any comedian and they just, that's been doing it for 10 years or, or more, and, and they'll tell you, they can rattle off the number of variables that affect things that you guys don't really notice or think much about. I think there's about 50 people in here uh, right now, and I'm really happy with that. And I booked this in a small room so that if we got a nice turnout, like 50 people, that it would feel like a nice, full, um, awesome room. And this is an intimate setting and the ceilings are low and everything. Now, if, if you say 50 people were in, if we were in like a 2,000 seat theater right now. This And soft. you were spread out <laughs> all over the place. This would be um, even more awkward than I will inevitably make it at <laughs> a number of points, um, and 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 even so, you can even take these these same numbers in this kind of same space, and you can raise the ceilings um, up four times higher, and then laughter doesn't bounce off as much, and so you guys don't laugh as much because laughter is contagious. The fact that you're have to, having to be packed in is all going to be a, a variable. And uh, you know time of day, and and, and there's so there's a million things, and this is just my one stupid, silly little job, uh, obscure job um, as a comedian, and this applies to just everything in all of life. Um, you could you could look at anything from it, just it really highlights the amount of um, how kind of subjective and and context dependent. Um, all of our experiences are. And the reason why we talk a lot about this stuff on the show is because I think this is things that can kind of help people quote-unquote kind of improve our lives, whatever that necessarily means, whatever standards you're using for that. And, And you guys in particular do a lot of research on... Um, well-being, and, and I think it's something that, it's uh, you know, it's pretty clear to everyone what the goal is, you just, like, you know, you get a billion dollars, and then you bask in the envy of everyone else, and then you're just happy, and you're set for life. But why? Why does that work for everybody? Because <laughs> we know these billionaires are just so happy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Just ecstatic. They're just so, so-, um, so I have, uh, um, so, I mean, I'm, I'm uh, making this a very silly question, of course, but um, take something that seems very cut and dry. I think most people, if you were, if you were to say, what is one thing, and I, I've, I've seen all this research and I'd still probably answer it the same. They're like, what's one thing that could influence your life in, in for sure a positive way if you had this? You'd be happy, and I'd go. Yeah, more money. That would if I had more money. And in studies, that's almost never the case, right? Or I mean, or or it's limited in its uh, exactly
5: up to a point, right? So no no one wants to be destitute. Um, it's really difficult to have your basic needs met if you if you don't have enough money to live. Um, but once you you have your basic needs met, like adding additional dollars or a thousand dollars has much less of an effect than, than you would expect. Um, uh, people have this uh, belief that as um, your income goes up, happiness will increase at the same rate. Um, but as it turns out, that's just not the way that people work. That's not the way that we're built. Um, it's, it's seldom that we have truly linear relationships. When it comes to people's psychology, eventually you just get this little crest in the curve, and you just stop. It, it stops mattering. Like over $100 million maybe you just start caring about your family more, or your health, or um, I, I guess not other people but, but maybe. That's what you're
4: well, yeah, I think the way that the thing, so there's um, so I think what happens is over a certain amount of money, and you know it's, what is that amount of money? It, it depends of course, Like so the, the most cited study says around $75,000 so you hit about $75,000 and you start to get that kind of diminishing return. Exactly. So pulling people out of extreme poverty has an incredible effect on their happiness. <clears throat> Taking someone who's like up middle class, upper middle class and beyond doesn't seem to have as much effect. Of course though, it also depends on how you spend the money, right? So what are you using it for? What are you doing? Like all of these other things start to happen where all things equal, more is better because it, it provides opportunities to kind of craft a life that might be might be better. You know, my answer to that question is actually, it, you know, is correlated with money, but is about health. Like, I think like the foundation of of living a good life. I don't actually like using the term happiness because I think that's just a sliver, like one one path to living a good life. Um, but the idea of living, how do you live a good life? How to have good well being? There's people. I just like saying how do you live a good life because it what it does is it really. Um, Emphasizes how subjective that is. That two completely different people can be living a good life, and their paths may be different. But I do think that in general, one of the foundational aspect of living a good life is to have good health. And that's um, some of that obviously is beyond our control. You know, we have you know genetic influences, accidents happen, and so on. But um, a lot of it ends up having to do with you know people's lifestyle choices and. You know, again, other things outside their control, like where they live, where they were born and so on and so forth. But, man, it's really hard to live a really good life and be in a lot of pain to have, you know, have um, to be to be dealing with disease and so on in that kind of way. And that's often really overlooked in the in the in our
0: Research. Medicine I, I focuses on it, but, but not like the behavioral folks as much. When we were talking over, uh, over dinner, I, I thought you guys brought up such a fascinating point um, that I'd never thought about before, which is about kind of the people studying this mm-hmm. stuff and their, what their biases might be.
5: Yeah, so not to pick on you, Pete, too much. Please, um, please. I deserve it. But it's really easy to say that the most important thing is health when Hight, you are actually. a tall, <laughs> <said height>. uh, <laughs> healthy, um, white, educated... Um, Wait, I did not say being white is important. No, 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 I'm just saying. It's, <laughs> it's, uh, it's easier yeah, you're right, to right. point out like, yes. what are the, the sort of necessary <laughs> ingredients for a good That's life true. when you have a lot of... Characteristics yeah, that are associated with living a good life, mm. um, and in psychology, we, we we develop a lot of insights about how people work, um, but we don't always recognize that the people who are developing those insights are strange people. Like they're 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 peculiar. They don't necessarily come from broken households. They don't necessarily experience a lot of harshness in their life. Not coming from a place of poverty. Um, they they. They have a sort of narrow band of human experience, and that narrow band biases the way that they interpret their data, the way that they generate their theories, the way that they design studies, et cetera. Yeah, I agree. I,
4: actually, I would say this, even if they do come from those places, like you know, I um, actually grew up um, in a very working class um, family, you know, single mom, all that kind of stuff.
0: Did you even, I just hear a fiddle playing all of a sudden? <laughs> say, say that again? Just the world's tiniest It's the world's tiniest fiddle. I thought I heard it for a second.
1: <laughs> I said
4: I did, I, did <laughs> say I wasn't going to be sad when you left tomorrow. And, uh, um, no, so, um, no but, but, but what I'm saying is that e- the folks who so obviously a, a good deal of luck leads to getting out of that situation. I always yeah. sort of joke that like I should be managing an enterprise rent a car right now, not doing what i'm what I'm doing, but some of it is, is like that there's also a set of characteristics that um that help that can help with that kind of thing so we we were sort of talking about this idea of having this and this is this is related to my bias about about good health is like if you want to be successful in life, it helps to be healthy to be able to work long hours. It helps to have what what some people call it, have a motor right to you know now, Shane, Shane. points out having a motor is really just being prone to anxiety, um, which I think is actually a little bit true, right? Anxiety is kind of a successful person's disease in a in a sense because um, it makes you very vigilant. It makes you kind of cross things off lists and and, um, and work hard to avoid bad bad things. Um, but these kinds of things sort of do contribute to at least su- a certain set of paths. Um, to living a good life, like if you want to be achievement oriented, work oriented, career oriented, it helps to have that, whether it be genetic or a set of, con, you know, sort of contextual influences that allow you to, to thrive. Yeah,
0: it's, it's, it's funny when sometimes I'll be like bummed out and then why am, I, why am I not feeling so good right now, like psychologically, and then I remember that I've just been on a five-day bender.
1: <laughs>
0: and I'm, I'm like, <laughs> going from waking up and being miserable to all, all day to blowing off a little steam and starting that all over again for a few days. And then I stopped doing that, and I'm like, I'm so happy right now. This is, where is this coming from? You know how long it took me to figure that out? That I still haven't totally learned it. But it, but what's interesting is, is if... Um, if well-being has to do with um, with context, and if, if you take something like um, financial gains where, where you maybe get a raise and you feel really, real great about it, and then the next year, if you don't get a raise or you get a cut in pay, or, or even if you don't get a raise and you just make the same, you're Everybody not feeling good about it. That's really the problem when other people well, get the raise. When other people get the raise and you don't. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. So. That's. So it seems like you need kind of these, and, and we've talked about this before. These kind of incremental improvements, but health seems to be a thing where you can almost just have the stability, and have sort of, it, uh, the 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 thing that I wonder about is if there's a ways of tricking kind of this incline, um, and I've kind of half-joked with you about this before, but um, when when people uh, when people go on vacation, they save up all year to go to Hawaii, and they go to Hawaii for a week, they have a good time, probably not as good as they think they're going to, or, or maybe even better, who knows, and then they go back, and it's kind of hard to get back, oh, yeah, you know, and, and kind of just go back to dreaming about Hawaii for the next year and are working 55 hours, or 55 weeks out of a year and, and, and to save up for this Hawaii week, I think that instead you should go to like Abu Ghraib for a week and, and like be waterboarded and tortured and, and, and shamed and then you go back to work and you're like, you know, my boss is not that bad of a guy. And, and and uh, what, what I'm wondering is if there is ways to, because I feel like I do this to myself all the time, where I I will be going really uh, like my life will be going really well and being upward, and then it just starts to plateau and I just feel unsatisfied, and then I just do something to like get my life in a gutter real quick, like, like, like I to just take a real quick dip, like kind of, and I just kind of bounce right off the bottom and come back ready to go. And, <laughs> The at the time. Listeners,
4: out. please do not start doing this
0: stuff. Yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, well, I'm wondering your thoughts on everything that I just said. Tell me how wrong I am in some regards, and, and then... Um, but we'll, well, let's start with how you're right. right. Okay.
4: So I think that, that there's a lot of research okay. on downward social comparisons. So... When you, um, so this is that notion of you know if everybody else gets a raise and you don't, that's really painful. Or if everybody gets a raise and you get just a, a smaller one, you know whatever it may be, you get a raise but everybody earns more. Is it, is, what is the point of comparison? We're very, we're very narrow in our thinking. It's hard to think about absolutes. It's easy to think about things relatively. And so in that way, your, your suggestion of being waterboarded is good because you can say... Wow, this is, this is pretty good compared to that. And that's a very salient, negative thing. To, it's a good reference point. It's, it's a good reference point in that way. I, I mean, I don't, I want to be, I'm going to be hesitant to prescribe what people should do, in part because this actually highlights... So your suggestion highlights a, a broader question of what is living a good life. And so my quick instinct is like, oh, I li- if, you, if you have a job that's sort of monotonous and sort of inescapable, seemingly inescapable, and then having a, having a vacation is, is a really good thing because it gives you something to look forward to. It gives you some purpose, something to get to. It's, you know, oh, I just got to make it through this day and, you know, I'm, I'm one day closer and so on. And that's, that's a reasonable way to cope. My question becomes, well, is there some way to change... Aspects of this monotonous work to create maybe not make it more pleasurable but but enhance it in terms of adding some meaning to it or adding some level of achievement in a way to like have some other input into what is a good life be activated by your by your work to to help, you know, day to day in
5: that way. So so that people don't feel the need to go to Hawaii as strongly? No,
4: no, I'm, I'm saying is this is that, that what it... Um, look, you, get, you should take your vacation, you should enjoy your vacation as much as you can, and the, the research on vacations is clear. We, we benefit from them, and we benefit from them not just during the time of the vacation, but all that other time. But to expect two weeks of activity to cure 50 weeks of monotony is... Um, the math doesn't work. And so you want to attack the monotony by addressing the monotony, not by like, oh, I'm going to have some other, you know, that other thing to look forward to in that way. And so how, now that's, you know, it depends on the type of monotony, depends on the problems, but are there ways to create um, a change within your day-to-day that makes getting out of bed earlier easier, you know, to, to provide a bit of experience? Call it excitement, call it purpose, call it whatever it is. We're able to take a lot of, to deal with a lot of shit in life as long as there's a good reason to deal with the shit. Yeah. right the that's, that's the way I sort of think about it. And so people deal with a lot of shit to, to become rich. They may deal with a lot of shit because they want to raise a good family. They, they may deal with a lot of shit because they want to cure cancer, right? Those are, you may you can do a lot of monotonous things for those reasons. And you don't need a vacation to get you through those things. It's raising a good family. It's curing cancer, which in and of itself is a worthwhile thing. And monotony is okay in that, in that regard.
0: Um, Did I just, I just
4: get too heavy? No, no, no,
0: no, no, no. no. Oh, I, mean, I mean, one problem, one, one thing that I, uh, I... I mean, one tricky part of that feels like... So if you're on this... Um, you're trying to get off this, say hedonic treadmill, and, and stop thinking that having more and more and more of this is going to make you happy, and you're going to gain. In a, a, instead, you're you're going to tell your brain, look, I'm going to start just appreciating what I have, and and this but but that will lead to more um, of a monotonous life too, right? If things aren't, uh, if things aren't constantly kind of
5: changing, I don't know. Um. Well, there's some work that that suggests um, that when you break up things that feel bad, you you think that you're doing yourself a favor. So, like, you have this monotonous life, and you think, you know, I'm going to, like, take a little vacation here, and I'm going to take a little vacation there to break up the monotony. Um, But what, like, as you were describing, what, what tends to happen is that you have the interruption, and then when the interruption is done that monotony feels worse than it would have otherwise. Like If you had just let yourself adapt to this unpleasant feeling, where we're super resilient in that way, like we, we want to feel relatively okay as much as we can, so there's this um, what, what people refer to as the um, psychological immune system that helps with coping, and one of the ways that it does that is it attenuates the emotional intensity of, of these experiences. And that, those emotions can be things like boredom. Um, they can be things like frustration, etc. Over time with repeated exposure, if you don't have those interruptions, the, the pain sort of lessens, um, you get yeah. dull to it.
4: Well, the, yeah, this hedonic, tra- for, for those of you who don't know this idea of the hedonic treadmill is sort of this idea that you think like, oh, if I get this uh, you know, BMW 3 Series, I'll be happy. And, and you buy the car, you save your, save your, uh, your ducats, you buy the car and you're, it's like pretty amazing. And then, uh, you know, three, six months later, you're like, yeah, the car's all right, but that five series, woo, that's gonna be really good. And you keep saving and you get that five series and it's great for a while. And what happens is we tend to adapt to, um, to good things in life. The good news is we tend to adapt to bad things too, we just don't do that as well. So we can adapt to pain, we can adapt to certain things, but we just don't do, we're really, really good at adapting to good meals and, um, and uh, the, the luxuries in life. Um, and so what happens is, you know, you're, you know, the notion is you're on a treadmill, you feel like you're moving, but you're really not, you know, in that way. So I want to, if I Ken's chain. I'd like to step back for a second because sure. this is related to your to your um, guy's observation about the types of people who do this research and how it biases the research. So the fact that we're sitting up here trying to talk about well-being, um, I think is uh, is a little is in some ways premature. Like so, like this has been a, this is a topic that goes back 2,500 years to to Greek philosophers um, in the in. Nowadays, in terms of within academic circles, it goes back sixty plus years to a bunch of economists so so if you're you're an economist you're you're interested in measuring choices. so you try to derive people's well-being by the the choices that they make. But some economists are like, well, you know, there might be some other way that we can do this. They're very data focused and so um, there's a lot of these economists are involved in these like longitudinal studies where every year, you know, the Pew Research Center, whatever it is, collects thousands and thousands of responses to surveys. And some smart person said, we should ask people what they think of their lives, how satisfied they are with their lives. So we need to get some measure of well-being. And so they came up with a seven point scale. On balance, how satisfied are you with your life? You know, one to seven. Um, and then what you do is you, you put that as the, dep- the dependent measure in a regression equation with a lot of other things, like age, like income, you know, and so on and so forth in this kind of way. And for many, many years, that's where all the insights about living a good life came from, was from a bunch of regression equations that predicted, that was just predicting that one question asked once a year to thousands and thousands of people. Well, that's not a really very good way to, to, to measure well-being because what goes, into that, what goes into that judgment at that one kind of period of time, um, and that's where the field started to, invo- to evolve a little bit because people started thinking about what are those inputs. Well, one of those inputs is um, how pleasurable your life is, and that's often predicted by how much money you have, that you can afford more pleasures when you have more money. You can afford nicer vacations, you can afford better meals, you can um, afford a nicer house and so on and so forth. Air conditioning and so on and so on is there. And then more recently people started to, to inject what Lawrence is interested in is, is this notion of meaning. And I'm gonna actually pass it off to him for, for a moment to talk about about meaning. And um, what's interesting though about this is that pleasure and meaning, um, don't, they don't often co-occur.
5: Certainly. Um, so this is work that I'm doing with someone in the room who I cannot see. Over there, I think. Over there? Maybe over there. Um, a PhD student, uh, Aaron Percival Carter, who also, I believe, is a friend of the show. Hi, Aaron. Hi. Oh, she's over there. Uh, yeah. yeah. Um, Aaron's been on the show before. Yeah. Um, but yeah, we've been looking at how the way that people pursue meaning is fundamentally different from the way that we pursue pleasure and our, our sort of expectations or how hard we are on ourselves when we pursue meaning um, uh, differs from when we're just trying to have a good time, trying to have fun. So for example, like we'll spend way more time in the pursuit of meaning than we do in the pursuit of pleasure. And, and when we look at meaning, we're looking at the things that um, sort of lead to some change in who you are as a person. Are you becoming better? Are you um, establishing better social relationships? Um, but things are kind of related to like self-growth Is um, what, uh, what was it, Aristotle I think referred to as eudaimonia. Um, so we, we have this uh, sort of way of contrasting hedonic pursuits from eudaimonic pursuits um, where we expect that yeah, if we're pursuing meaning, those benefits are gonna last a long time, it's worthwhile. It's like, um, an investment the things that we can do to lead to more meaningful life are these um, investments that pay off into the future but as an investment you can only get on the tail end what you put in up front. so we, we have these uh, higher demands on ourselves we have to put more energy more time into sort of the pursuit of meaning we see this in our consumption we ask people to talk about like a meaningful book or a meaningful movie that you want to watch or a meaningful vacation. And um, in our studies, what we find is that people expect to work harder to derive meaning compared to comparable, pleasurable experiences. A book that we're reading for fun, a trip that we're taking for fun, a movie that we expect to be just goofy, et cetera.
0: I, I read the exact same books now that I read before starting this podcast. And I used to read them for fun, and now I read them for work. And it's definitely changed my whole experience of it. I find myself thumbing through to see how many more pages are left in the chat. <laughs> and and, and uh, that, that sort of thing. Um, and so it is, it's, it's hard to find that balance. And then it's also hard to... Uh, it, I feel like it's, it's very, very difficult to predict um, what is ultimately going to... Uh, be, be the most rewarding for us.
5: So what you're describing is um, the, the fact that we, we also engage in like, purely utilitarian experiences, right? So not everything that we do is going to have a direct impact on our well-being. There might be some indirect impact because like, sometimes your car just has to get washed. Sometimes you just have to go into the office to get things done Sometimes
0: you really got to make sure and clean up after yourself at Pete's so you can be invited back next time. <laughs> it's just stuff that you really should do. <laughs> I do deserve this.
1: <laughs>
4: <laughs> well, I want to say this, this idea of like, so, so you get back to that seven point scale and you think about, oh, how satisfied are you with your life? You have okay. two very different people who both say seven right one lives a a very hedonic life they they enjoy a massage and they have a good sex life and they're they eat good meals they sleep in you know they're they're they exercise they have a lot of positive emotion in their in their lives (laughs) as
0: pete just brags about himself (laughs) 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 that's pete's life (laughs) actually he's he's doing well for himself That's why I like hearing Pete's take on things, because every time I visit, I'm like, or you You can live like Lawrence's life,
4: where you have, where you
0: have, hold
4: on, I'm not
1: finished yet. (laughs) What was that
0: reaction
4: Yeah.
1: What do you think
0: he's, what do you think he's about to say
4: there? (laughs) We're friends here. I don't think he's gonna deny what I'm about to say. Lawrence lives a much more meaningful life than I do. Right, so he says seven on the same scale. Um, and that's because he's, he's a good father and he's a good husband. He, is, um, he He's been transformed by this, this decision to have a family and it, it focuses him in, in ways that the person pursuing a, a purely hedonic life doesn't. Both of those people are living a good life. Maybe both of those people would be unhappy living the opposite life. Right? The, the, the idea is that you know what is... There are sort of some general things that can contribute to, to well-being, but it's not, it's not, there's not a one-size-fits-all way of, of doing this um, in that sense. And that's where I think academics have it wrong. So anytime an academic writes a popular press book that says, if you want to live a good life, you should do this thing, I think is misguided. Um, what academics should do is find out what are the paths to a good life we know meaning is a, is a good path we know that, that happiness pleasure is a good path there are other paths that are being, are being looked at but to try to tell someone that they should pursue meaning and give up pleasure or pursue pleasure and give up meaning I think is bad advice because it's really only it's actually your genetics your context your culture and so on that help you de- derive an interpretation of that life. That whether you say it's a seven, a five, or three, or a one
0: on that scale. So I have a I have one like, person clapped. Oh, <laughs> thank you. Thank you. I'll uh, we'll take it. Um, Forty nine didn't clap.
1: So I.
0: Oh, it's, funny. it's far too late for that.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> I, I, so, um, first off, uh, one because I, I could list off a million of these. Uh, like, uh, I read a book in this context and this context, and I had two different results. But I'm sure you guys have um, have your own examples you'd like to know about. So, I want to open things up to questions in just a second. But before we do that, I have one other topic that, I've, and this is just a little bit of a, of a tangent. But it's so fascinating um, that if I forget to bring it up, I'm going to be kicking myself uh, later. And it does—it it is slightly related to um, uh, to health, uh, certainly. Um, but Lawrence, could you talk a little bit about um, embodied um, cognition uh, be, because this is—I—I um, I, I think it, anyway. The first time I ever heard about this stuff, I—I I was just blown away and. Now, after knowing a little bit about it, it's something that has definitely changed the way that I see the world, and I kind of see, pick up on little bits of it um, everywhere.
5: Yeah, for sure. Um, so in, in some of my work, one of the things that I look at is the way that bodily states influence our thinking, influence our psychology. Um, and there, there are a few ways that you can think about that. So on the one hand, like obviously, we are just kind of like meat machines, we we occupy bodies. You say
0: that like it's a bad thing. No 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 it's no, 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 Not a
5: machine. Not, yeah. It's
0: not bad. At all.
5: Um, I think I saw that movie once. <laughs> in a hotel room. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's not a bad paint thing. Machine. It's just uh, the sort of the, no. the reality is that we occupy bodies. We have these physical No, at home mics. I'm
4: allowed to. I'm allowed to watch whatever I want at home. Um, <laughs> Sorry, that was a late
5: response. Okay. It's okay. I appreciate the timing. Yeah. Um,
0: <laughs> um, but... This whole conversation is reminding me a lot of my tattoo that says meat machine. <laughs> 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 That's one of the dumbest things I've ever seen. These, the <laughs> l- These, <are laughs> These are the
4: latest <laughs> jokes. These <are> the worst <laughs> time jokes.
5: It's like I'm sitting with people who understand and study humor for a living. Um, Amazing. And body cognition. Um, So, yes, um, over the past 20 years, there's been a lot of work that's been done showing that our bodily states have a reliable, systematic, um, somewhat predictable, like not necessarily counterintuitive, like in a lot of ways, quite intuitive effects on our thinking. So... <clears throat> For example, um, when we're exposed to things that are warm in temperature, like physical temperature, like the, uh, this cup that I'm holding right now that many of you cannot see, um, the temperature of this cup can have some influence on my thoughts related to sort of psychological temperature, um, like how warm people are, are they like sort of warm, generous, or friendly, sociable, or are they cold and sort of standoffish, antagonistic, etc.? cetera. Um, And all of that is just a a reflection of the fact that the way that we develop a psychological construct of warmth is pretty largely constrained by our understanding of physical warmth or physical temperatures. Um, So thankfully I haven't been the only person doing work along these lines. Like people look at the impact of weight, the weightiness of objects has some effect on how important we think topics are. Where if you give someone a clipboard that's weighted heavily and you ask them to fill out an opinions uh, sort of questionnaire, they'll report that those questions are more important than they would have with a normal a normal weight uh, clipboard. Um, hard, hard chair, hard bargain. Well, yes, exactly. Right. The 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 sort of the hardness of the things that we come into contact with makes us a little bit like hardier in our negotiations. I think that was in the context of buying a car yeah. or something like that.
0: Yeah, they had different firmness of seats, and they and people would, would be much harsher uh, and dr- drive a harder bargain if they happened to be sitting in a harder seat. Yeah.
5: So there's one way of thinking about those things that sounds surprising, but then there's this other work on sort of the stances that people take when they are engaging in some activity, this like power stance notion of like being more like uh, sort of domineering in your presence and taking up more space makes you feel like a more powerful person. And when you feel like a more powerful person, you behave more powerfully and you get things done and you express more confidence. You're more likely to get the job and things along those lines. So again, it's just kind of our bodies are not disconnected from our mental life. Like our mental life is our bodily life. So in that way, we were talking over dinner, like this term embodied cognition, uh, is a little dissatisfactory because it suggests that these are two different things, like cognition is over here and embodiment is over here. There, there's no reason to separate the mind from the body. Mm. Um, all of
0: that was basically just to be like uh, just to tell you guys uh, embodied cognition is a mind blowing subject that you should look into more about uh, It's uh, b- because there's a million of these um, uh, of these different it isn't one of the takes that i heard on it is is that kind of these parts of the brain that do the fancier processing and come up with this language stuff evolved later on and were built on top of existing framework for our more primitive kind of physical senses um and and that's why it so so these kind of we come up with all these metaphors for things like calling something
5: high or blue or whatever um certainly certainly so um the the brain is, is really amazing in a lot of ways, but it's not it's not super special. Like it's not magical. It's really we we just do the best that we can with what we have. If there's some new challenge that humans have, they need to figure out um, like how to communicate in cultures, how to uh, get along with each other, how to navigate different uh, spaces, etc. That it really um, is the case that we co-opt existing architecture to deal with new problems. Um, so in that way, um, I have some work where it's, it's really just kind of like an idea where we talk of, about the, the sort of a fundamental kind of organizing principle of the brain is this notion of scaffolding, where the things that we learn to do early in life that kind of are based on like the most primitive versions of the human brain, uh, very early infants imagine, those things structure what we, or those sort of uh, mental, um, uh, sort of structures, structure um, what we learn to do later in life. So when we um, develop some sort of notion of what does it mean to be a warm person all of that development that sort of metaphor is built on these existing structures and these existing experiences with physical warmth. So can, um, I,
4: can I add one? Yeah. Like, so um, doing this kind of work there's like I wasn't fine that I like have kind of like sort of simple rules that I Try, if I have to try to f- figure out some puzzle about why people are behaving. And one of them is, so this is actually a re- l- little bit related to the meat machine joke, but I, I think of humans as associative machines. But, that they're really, we're really good at connecting things, right? So when things co-occur, when things are related, um, like a lot of our judgments and behaviors are related to just very simple models of association. That X is related to Y, Um, And so warm is better than bad, excuse me, warm is better than cold, right? And so um, that gets translated into social relationships too, because of this, it's sort of an overextension of an associative set of um, associations that we tend to have. And you can, um, a lot of the kind of things that I think about sort of are like, oh, it's just a over application of kind of us just being very primitive, associative
0: machinery. Do you think there'd be less fights in bars if it wasn't if we weren't all drinking cold beers? (laughs)
1: Like like if
0: everyone was just drinking hot toddies? (laughs) Yeah, maybe 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 it's not the alcohol. The whole time, all these problems we could have just changed the temperature of the alcohol. (laughs) Could have saved so many lives. <laughs> so many lives. So, many, so much jail time <laughs> <laughs> um, Do we have any? Um, so I can't see you very well, but there. Uh, Brent's going to be going around with microphones. So just, if you have a question, just like in uh, class, just raise your hand. And there is. So you flip the um, the microphone on, and a light will come on, and then great, and then just hand it back to her when you're done. Um, all right. Perfect. So.
1: On the idea
0: of embodied cognition, kind of a tangent to that, um, what do you think about,
4: maybe one reason to split the mind and the body would be um, the more that we move into the virtual world and kind of immerse ourselves in it, the more we see people exploring multiple personalities.
5: So maybe they might have multiple characters in a game or they might have multiple accounts where they act a certain way on one form, they have a totally different personality on another one. That can only become more Uh, the case when we have VR, where you actually are now in a digital body, so maybe you still have to have a body, maybe that really is part of
4: consciousness, Uh, but maybe that body doesn't necessarily have to be uh, directly physical,
0: Uh, what what would you think about that prospect?
1: Do you want to take that one?
0: (laughs) (laughs) That's a big one. That's a tough one. I I mean, we all do, first off, we we all wear many hats in life, we are all many people, yeah,
4: certainly the, the notion of identity has been well studied, um, not not by me, but the idea that we throughout our lifespan our identity changes. But even w- even at a static point of time, we have may have multiple identities: mom, boss, right. friend, right? You know, and so on in that in that kind of way. Um, in terms of, I, I don't I can't begin to answer your question about what is a virtual what what is the effect of a virtual body. I don't know of any research that looks. Has looked at that yet?
0: I so did. Um, I did virtual reality once, and it was in a it was in a room, um, and and uh, it was at... Uh, Duncan Trussell had a whole room set aside, and and I was playing a game, and I I played it for probably like thirty minutes, and became so immersed in it. In fact, that I'm like dodging these arrows and stuff that are have that I ran into the physical wall in his house that I forgot still existed. That's how fast. It it took over.
5: Um, So I I think that there are a couple of ways of thinking about that question. Um, And and they're really hard. It's a really hard question. Because one of the things that you're kind of getting at is this notion of what is consciousness and how do we physically instantiate consciousness. And if, if any of you are following the sort of world of consciousness studies, you know that that's like literally called the hard problem. It's the thing that like... We've been trying to figure out this question for the past, say, like, 100, 120, 140 years. Maybe it's and just because we've been, like, sitting on hard, firm surfaces <laughs> the whole time. Oh, this
0: is such a difficult question. <laughs> it's so hard. Like, no, you just need <laughs> some pillows, Get dude. <laughs> <or> a lazy
5: one. You're consciousness <laughs> by now.
1: <laughs> yes,
5: it's, we need, I need a couch in my office. Um, but... <laughs> to, to your question, this, it's, it's a really um, uh, difficult thing to sort of say that you, you have to kind of take either like as an article of faith or, um, or be really open with this idea that consciousness is the result of neuro, like neuronal, like biological, chemical, physical reactions in, in the meat machine. We don't know how that happens, but we assume that it happens that way. And if you're not willing to make that assumption, then then what you're saying completely holds that, yeah, maybe we can insert our consciousness in, in these uh, virtual... Uh, the Matrix. Digital... It's called the Matrix. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I, you know, I think your question is, is really
4: an interesting one, and I'm trying to map it onto things that I know, um, which is limited. Um, but I think one of the fascinating things is that is how we as humans are very easily transported into a narrative world. There's a, a lot of research on you start reading a person a story, and it, and that they can, um, like, all of a sudden, like, enter sort of a different kind of mindset in this way, where then all of a sudden they, they feel like they're part of this world, and their 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 cognitions change, their um, reasoning changes, and so on, and that we do it. Surprisingly easily, and it's actually surprisingly difficult to to snap people out of it, you know. And um, and so, what I think what you're describing in these virtual worlds are our ability. And I don't know why this is the case, but our ability to step into another world that is completely different. In the case of people shooting arrows at you, and you can become totally comfortable in it, and start and it can start to feel really real, even though. You know somewhere in the back of your mind you know that it's made up right you know that um, this happens in movies that happens in books you can be transported away with science fiction to worlds that, that you know are made up but they feel so very real in the moment in that in that way we're really good at that and I think that VR is going to provide more opportunity for that
0: um. We might all be in a dream right now. We have no other way of knowing. Like, we might, you, you, you might be dying right now and, uh, and have no idea, and this is the last little dream that you're having. But um, So, um, with so that, Shane, we, <laughs> we have one ready for you
2: right here. Sure, sure.
6: So this was a perfect segue actually into my question because the whole concept of story, so I don't know if anybody here has done the Landmark Forum, but one of the things that they do in that course is they take apart language and how language actually creates the context in which we live. And when we shift our language, we shift our context and therefore we shift our experience. And so when you deconstruct language so that there's literally, you're sitting in like emptiness because you've now deconstructed everything that has created your context you suddenly have this ability to create any story you want to create and become that story so the idea is that we are generating our own story in our head and then we're living it out and that we have the power to shift that story whenever we want to we just don't have the distinctions that allow us to do that unless we learn them So some of those, when you're talking about associations, when we associate a lot of things, we create stories about things based on associations and assumptions. But when we deconstruct those, we realize we invented them in the first place, and they're not real, and therefore we can create a new story and live in a different place and have a different experience and have more pleasure, potentially. So I'm curious, my question then is, what have you experienced around language, and what is your thought about all that?
0: I've created an audience trippier than I am. (laughs) 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 Um, This this is something that's came up before in a podcast, oddly enough. Um, And that's a tricky one. I I mean, I will say uh, that one of the first things I I always think of is is just how um, different cultures um, see... Um, see rainbows in different ways based on how they're taught it so you, you give a, a child from a different culture 300 crayons to draw a rainbow with um, without marking them or anything and they'll and and consistently they'll they'll pick different colors in different cultures because they were because the rainbow is the full spectrum of colors and so if you're taught a certain um, category uh, that's just what you see and you simply can't see any of these other categories other than um, what you've been taught. So, in the same way, is the way that, um, uh, like, we have to get along through life through these, um, through through this language so it, How how much of that is influencing um, the way in which we interpret our reality? Say say, I were to try to make a wild attempt at applying this to the kind of embodied cognition stuff. Um, say. Mm-hmm. Say we we look at it like accents rather than language. If if there's like a real harsh kind of biting accent compared to like a very like French very smooth like like, <laughs> like, uh, like it, is it uh, would French people be that smooth if they didn't have that accent or like what came first? You know, it, 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 you know you
5: know what I'm it's, saying. It's a reasonable hypothesis. I th- I think I'm not going to run and, that and, study.
0: And, and am I like this is like a wild stab at trying to like you know is, is that sort of does that make sense what I'm saying? Um, sort of. You, can I can I
4: say something? Sure. I yeah. So I want to relate this this notion to what you just said because I, I agree with it. I think that well you're we're, this is a, language is a way to create context, right? So so there, fundamentally what I, my guess is that if you're sitting here listening to this conversation, you're kind of like just kind of give me a little hint what I might do to live a little better life tomorrow than I did today, right? And so I think one of those things is is because context matters so much, how is it that you ch- can change context, right? So So one is obviously don't go to a buffet if you don't want to overeat, right? You know, so how do you create systems and rituals, habits in life that lead you to the kinds of behaviors that are better for you than not? But another one is how do you view words? How do you view language in a way that might be positive when other people see it as negative? Right? So, so um, this, this came up. Um, uh, someone used the term promiscuous. You know, so, so is that a good term or is that a bad term? You know, the, the feeling is, oh, that's sort of a bad term. We still call someone promiscuous.
0: But I, really, because anytime I like, oh, that person is from <laughs> I'm like, really? Yeah.
4: <laughs> well, that's well, thank
0: you, because that's exactly the point, right? Because
4: that can be seen as a very good thing, right? right? Because it can reflect your values and can reflect <laughs> um, a belief about what living a good life is like, and so on in that way. And so, so use being clear about what what words mean to you versus what they mean to other people can actually help. Avoid an automatic association that can occur that reflects another group of people's values, maybe not your own in that in that way. And so I do think that idea of understanding language and what it means and how it may mean a word or a sentence or an idea may may mean something different to you than it does to me is important in terms of shaping our psychological world to help us feel better about who we
0: about walking a path that we want to walk. I've thought of a better example of this. I go to Australia as often as I can, which isn't nearly as often enough, but I have Australian friends too and I just being around that when I'm in Australia I'm always happier, but and that could just be because new environment whatever exciting adventure, but it seems like they're happy as well and what I think a big part of it is is that just such a huge part of the voca- their vocabulary is is you know, no worries. Ah too easy. And they literally look like they don't have any worries and shit's just really easy for them. I thought
4: you were gonna say the use of the term mate. I like I when I'm in Australia I like that when people use the term mate. Like it, it it's bonding in a way that um uh like it feels familiar in a way that um but enhances relationships.
5: I've I never been to Australia, but the, the things that you're saying make perfect sense. Oh, great.
6: <laughs> I just want to say, just on that, in, in, apparently, in some cultures in Africa, they have to say your name many times in a conversation, like Joe, I think Joe, and Joe, Joe, because they have to remind themselves that they are a separate entity from that person, because the way that they do their culture is they are one body. It's, more, communi-
0: it may
4: be it's more communal, maybe more communal in that sense, yeah, yeah.
6: yeah, so it's significant. Thank you.
0: Um, was I feel like he was next in the middle there. yeah, it seemed like
2: he was. The <laughs> I'm used to being in Okay, this lights. is good because it kind of follows what we're talking about. I was the one guy who clapped. Oh, thank you. <laughs> all, right,
0: all
2: right. And uh, relating to what Peter's saying, my name's Pete, by the way. Uh, and uh, <laughs> thank you, mate. Anyway. In in terms of this whole idea of of uh, well-being, and what makes us happy, rich or poor, you know, uh, we all know that the poorest people can be very happy, and rich people can be miserable. Um, one of the things that I think is worthwhile exploring is is the equation of uh, or what's missing maybe out of the equation is what other people think you should be doing to be happy versus what you think you should be doing to be happy. And for myself, um, this is an encounter of myself, I find that I try to basically be honest and true to myself about what I think works. You know, life leads to death. You only have so much time. Go for it. But if you let too many other people or society or things decide for you what well-being is, what, what you're supposed to do to achieve it, then I think you sell yourself out. It's almost like it's better to decide for yourself, explore those avenues, and if it doesn't work, move on to something else. But if you rely on other people to decide that for you, if you feel the pressure of other people deciding that for you, then somehow your disappointments always associated to them instead of the responsibility resting on you. Make any sense? Elaborate? Well,
0: It's a a little tricky because you're also like, you know what you need to do is find yourself. (laughs) (laughs) So I
4: I, already talked about the, the dangers of scientists Getting prescriptive, moving away from description, and so forgive me for for, for um, agreeing with you so wholeheartedly about this idea because I think um, this is really the challenge. So we talked about pleasure, we talked about meaning, the emerging, at least theoretical work, um, and to raise Erin's name again, um, I think this is starting to be some empirical work which she's which she's leading is what are the other paths to living a good life and. Um, and, and in this way, sort of the idea, of there's three mores. Is one, one is achievement, right? So doing something really big, something, you know, winning gold medals, maybe building a business, you know, getting a PhD, doing something that's hard, that, is, that stands out, um, engagement, engaging in creative pursuits, arts, the arts, like so, you know, um, experience the kind of flow state that comes from writing, that comes from painting a picture, that comes from sculpting. Um, and, uh, and then the last one is relationships, trying to disentangle meaning from relationships in this, um, in this kind of way. And I, I do believe that is the case that the best way to figure out your path is not to have other people tell you what their path is, but rather to reflect on what feels right. You know, when you look back on your life and the kind of things that you naturally gravitate towards, um that might be a hint that it's okay to, to spend your Friday night painting alone in your house when everybody goes to the bars. You're not a freak for wanting to do that. If that feels good, good for you.
0: What if you want to stay at home drinking while everyone else is out painting?
1: Oh.
4: <laughs> Depends on how much you drink, I think. Yeah, you know, and so in this kind of way. And so we all, our lives are sort of made up of like, uh, you know, balancing these different paths. Some, some people just pursue one all the time. Michael Phelps, you know, four hours a day in the, in the pool winning 25 gold medals, living a good life. You know, to, to him, someone else would be miserable doing that, right, in that kind of way. And so I think that, that this is one of the tough things about the sort of self helpy Approach to 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 well-being. So it seems
0: like there's not a great hack either. I mean, I, I mean, you hear about life hacks and what, and there there are these like small little practices, and you gain these habits and blah blah blah. But there's not. It. I mean, it, it's possible that there could be some sort of odd evolutionary hiccup that, like we talk about money, like having a. Having a, a you know diminishing seventy five thousand dollars, it's still making me a little happier, and then it kind of plateaus. But what if you hit like two point two billion dollars, and whatever happens in your head is just you're just ecstatic for the rest of your life, and there's just this point. But anyway, my my point is is, is that um, that all all of these things um, that uh, we're trying to measure are 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 these very um, are these very broad. Senses of like uh, of of doing doing this will lead to that, and it's just kind of reinforcing this idea of the enormous amount of individual uh, differences that go into this. Because because I, I do think that there are probably people that like it, when they say someone will win the lottery and then they're gonna not you know they get a peak and then they go back to normal. I think there's a couple people out there that have won the lottery and then they're like, yeah, you know been doing great ever since. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know? so, and, and, then, and then, unfortunately, the other way as well, that don't recover
5: from setbacks. Um, so not to uh, complicate things yeah. too much, uh, but to add on to what Pete was saying, um, we have these multiple dimensions of well-being, these multiple sort of areas of our life where we might be um, trying to maximize on, um, but we should also recognize that like, our preferences aren't static. And uh, the sort of the things that lead to happiness or well-being, however you want to think about it, at this point in your life right now, may not characterize you five years from now, 10 years from now, 20 years from now, or even tomorrow. Um, so so we have to, to recognize that, and Erin's and doing work along these lines, sort of showing that what we want out of life changes, um, and the sort of like, right now, for me, as Pete mentioned, like, yes, like I get meaning from my family life and raising my kids, etc. but that was not always the case, thankfully, um, and that may not always be the case. Hopefully, one day, they will move out of my house and I will be able to, um, to make choices that conform solely to my preferences.
0: Fingers crossed.
5: Hopefully, yeah. yes. Um, the, the one thing I also wanted to add to, uh, to what Shane was saying in terms of a life hack, um, I don't know that it's uh, really safe to, to make recommendations um, from where I sit, but I have a friend um, who lives by this saying, and I, and I appreciate it. Um, what he says is, have preferences, don't have standards. Have preferences, don't have standards. So the idea is that you can want to be better on some dimensions of your life, but as soon as you have this standard in place, inevitably you're going to fall short of that standard. And that's going to lead to this kind of like harshness, like difficulty forgiving yourself, beating yourself up. You feel like a failure because you you haven't hit that, that point that you're trying to achieve. As opposed to just kind of having this like sense of that's what I'm striving for, that's what I want. I don't want these other things. And if I'm making motions towards that thing that I prefer, it's, it's all good.
4: Yeah, this, uh, so I actually just read, the, it's a weird book to read, but I read uh, Scott Adams' book, like How to Fail at Nearly Everything. And it's, 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 it's a very nice book if you're kind of thinking about your life. Um, and he has a saying that's similar to this, which is, have systems, don't have goals. Right? And so his thing is, you know, and I, I'm a big believer in habits. You know, we are meat machines. So you, if you have a baby, um, you want to have that baby on a schedule because it it reacts really positively to a schedule going to bed at the same time and eating at regular intervals and stuff. Well, it's not like magic happens that all of a sudden in life we just don't need we don't need that anymore. We we still respond positively to it. And so his notion of having a system I think is about having a habit or having rituals. So people who exercise regularly know this that they that they exercise best when they do it at the same time every day or they have a regular kind of beats throughout the week that they, OK, on Mondays I do yoga, on Tuesdays I do this kind of thing. And so when you build systems or you, know, you have preferences, I would rather write than drink, then the goal of writing a book is more likely to happen, right? You know what I mean? Because you're now putting in the effort day in and day out. And, and what's beautiful about creative pursuits is, and not about alcohol, is that <laughs> is that like, some of the best, alcohol is best when it's new. Writing is not best when it's new. Writing is best when it's old. That is when it's something that you've gained some mastery over and it's a regular part of your life. And so um, having that as a system will lead, will help you accomplish goals, whatever they they are in that way. I think this is sort of similar to this idea.
0: Uh, yeah, I mean, when, when Pete says that, this sounds like a positive thing, but usually when he's saying it to me, he's like, look, you're a baby that needs a schedule, and it's, <laughs> I, take a, I take it a little harsher, but he's right, he's absolutely right. Well,
4: actually, I think, I mean, to, the, not to get into Shane and my relationship too much, I'm a little over, I'm a little too rigid, he's not, he's not scheduled we're, enough. We're a good right? balance if for each other. We're, if we're, we're, we're in the middle, very yin and
0: yang. Yeah. Um, uh, sorry did you was that a follow up because because we can do a quick follow up here but we need to I I think there's like two or three more questions I want to try to get to everybody and I also want to try to get wrapped up in uh, five or ten minutes thank you I
2: love all that input I want to kind of like try to zero in on my question was sort of about the dichotomy of making your own decisions about your happiness versus society's influence you know living up writing and living up to your own story as opposed to I think a lot of people search for happiness trying to live up to other people's stories and other people's expectations what do you think? I oh, mean is there a right or a wrong way? I feel like individually you're, you should find yourself in a position of pleasing yourself because you'll be disappointed if you try to please others ultimately all the time and that's my feeling of it I'm just wondering what you think of that
0: Oh, that guy sounds pretty bad and bad. Am I right, ladies? Um, I, uh... um,
1: i uh,
0: sorry, I just... I can't see you from here. I would have never been able to say that if I could actually see your face. Um, uh, I, uh... Well,
4: yes, uh, yeah, okay, yeah. So I think, actually, in general, I do agree with this in the sense of, like, you're pursuing... having this sort of authenticity about what is good for you is actually ends up being good for others in the, in, in the following way is that at least you're being honest with them about what you want and what kind of life you want to lead. Um, and I think the idea is this is what, what um, Lawrence was just saying is the fact is that our preferences, what, our, what a good life is, is constantly changing. And so in that way, the world can't know what's right for you at that point at that particular moment. I actually think that the question that is good to ask of the people who are in your life, the people who really know you, is to say, can they tell you what makes you happy? Like, can they tell you what your good life is because they know you so well that they can reflect back your behaviors in that way? So instead of saying, what should I do? Like, what would you do if you were in this scenario? You're just like, what do you, th- like, what is it that you think, like, makes me tick? What is it that, you, you know, you know me well enough to understand how, when I'm at my best. Um, that can, those, uh, other people can be valuable in that way, I think, because they can be really honest with you about, you know, are you achievement-oriented, are you relationship-oriented, are you meaning-oriented, and that you, that's easier to accept when they're
0: reflecting that back. Um, all right, uh, in front here. Uh, let's do maybe one or two more after this, it, it would uh, yeah, be good. Uh, how about you and in, 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 in the back as well, if, if that's cool. So three more questions.
3: So, so this question is sort of two part. One is you talk about your science, meaning was it Western, um, educated, industrialized, rich mm-hmm. well, Hold on rich, a second, is, is his microphone
1: on?
0: Yeah, can you hear, is that there, better? There. Uh,
3: okay, okay, sorry. Go on. So that's, you know, we're very weird, right? And then talk about um, cultural evolution and evolutionary psychology in the context of wellness. Can we look to those disciplines for some more clues about Mm well-being that we wouldn't necessarily get from this very individualistic society? Because your comments about finding your own path wouldn 't necessarily work in other parts of the world it might be diametrically opposed to the cultural rules that people other people grow up in you know we 're very individualistic here it's not so in the rest of the world well
4: to clarify though your own path might actually be very communal that is it may be very relationship oriented so it 's not necessarily in i 'm going to strike out on my own actually your own path might be that i 'm at my best as part of a, ver- a tight clan, you know what I mean, in, in that kind of way, which you are right is culturally um,
0: determined so the story I like to use about about culture... Evolutionarily determined as well, quite a bit I, I mean, sure, yeah, our, sure. our, our need for social, and, and a lot of the hedonic treadmill stuff has evolutionary where, where there was never an abundance in our past, that we could never kick up our feet
4: Yeah, I think certainly these pasts of living a good life are... Um, So the idea that we can even afford to be sort of individually achievement oriented is a fairly modern invention, right? That was almost impossible to do. Or, you know, um, you know, we needed patrons to pursue the to be an artist, you know, because you needed someone to take care of you in some sense. I, I think you can't discount the role of culture. It's super understudied in our field. The the example that I like to use, and I apologize if this makes anyone uncomfortable, but it actually will demonstrate how. Um, culture. How much we're influenced by culture is, um, you know, even the notion of pedophilia is culturally determined. So, in Papua New Guinea, there's a basically a ritual of manhood where the young men per, per, perform fellatio on the elders in the tribe. This is horrifying to people. They can't believe that this happens in this way. If you tried to stop this from happening within this you wanted to do good and stop this horrible act, the people in the, the, the these, young, these young boys in the, in, the, um, in the tribe would be damaged by that, right, in this kind of way.
0: Like, I was really hoping I was going to get through one conversation with Pete <laughs> in my entire life oh my god. where he didn't bring up the Papa New Guinea. Oh my <laughs> God, oh my God, oh my God. Oh my
5: god. Ladies and gentlemen, this will be
4: the last here we are
5: podcast <laughs> that I ever do. I, I'm sorry.
4: I, I bring this up because like when I read about this, like I, my skin crawled. you know like it was just it, it was like so impossible for me to understand how this was happening and yet this is a, you know this is culturally determined um, in a way that is hard to get. and so the idea that you can extract these um, descriptions and prescriptions from culture fully is imp- is impossible because it, its effect is so incredibly profound on the way we think, feel, and behave um, that uh, that we should your, your 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 statement, your question is is good. It's a cautionary tale about being again too prescriptive.
5: Um, so al- along similar lines we we hesitate to be prescriptive because of these cultural variations but what's nice about evolutionary psychology what's nice about um, attempts to connect what we're learning about how people work with um, some understanding of the sort of constraints of evolution and the sort of reality of, of our biology is that we can try to figure out well what are the human universals that should be applicable to all situations, to all people, to all circumstances. What are the things that should be culturally bound? What are the things sh- that should be um, sort of like temporarily bound to some specific context, et cetera, et cetera.
1: Mm.
0: You want to make some more dick jokes?
5: <laughs> I, w- I was thinking
0: of something that made me really happy that I would have a hard time making a evolutionary like. Uh, really grounding it in a specific kind of evolutionary context and the best thing I can think of is I once had the opportunity to fire a t-shirt cannon <laughs> <laughs> and it's the happiest I've ever been in my life <laughs> and I don't know how evolution prepared me for that. <laughs> um, uh, that that is to say so culture is an influence yeah clearly <laughs> We have another uh, question. I just want to brag. <laughs> um, all right. Uh, one more, and then, and then I think there's one in back, and um, we'll wrap up. Uh,
6: thank
2: you. Uh, so going back a bit to uh, marketing, I was curious if... All closer. Oh, thank you. So I was curious if uh, you all have in your own lives, like, tools that you use to maybe um, shake unseen influences and kind of maintain your own free will in terms of marketing, like... I mean, you must have a greater insight than all of us do. You? So I, I'm curious if you can impart something to the audience that we can take with us to uh, yeah, use every day like that. Thank you.
5: So I, I'm actually really, really bad at this. I joke with my students that you know I study marketing influences for a living. I'm really curious about consumer behavior. Um, yet every time that Taco Bell has some new promotion or some new like, variation on their menu, <laughs> Um, I feel compelled to try that thing, and I know that I shouldn't, but I, but I still do, and eventually um, I might fight it for a couple of days, but uh, eventually <laughs> I'm there. Um, well, one of the things that uh, when I sort of got into the field and started thinking about unconscious influences, like one of the best ways to sort of ward, um, ward off those influences is to recognize that they exist. Like Pete was saying before, People are afraid of subliminal advertising, but the thing you should really be afraid of is advertising. And you ask people, like, hey, they're watching that ad affect you. We kind of want to say, oh, no, it doesn't have any impact on me. Like, that's for all the simpletons. That doesn't affect me. But all of the evidence says that it does affect you. That's why we spend billions upon billions of dollars on advertising to influence people's behavior. Like, we do it because it works. Most of the
0: evidence says that we're all simpletons, basically. <laughs> like, there's no... We, we really think way too highly of ourselves. That's
4: true. That's absolutely true. I, and so... Um, I, I will get to your, your question in a moment, but there's, so the, the research um, on kind of thinking and, and feeling is really that there's these kind of two systems of thought that we're engaged in, so they're really badly named. One is called System 1, and one is called System 2. System 1 is this sort of intuitive, hot, emotional kind of thing, which is like, ooh, Taco Bell, feed me, right? And then there's a, the System 2, which is more cold, it's calculative, it's more of a thinking system, it's like, I need to figure out this math problem, right? Like, how much do I tip in this situation, and so on? How do I program this computer, and so on? Most of our lives, even the smartest people in the world, most of our lives are spent in a system one mindset, which is not effortful, which is easy, which is intuitive, which is, which is um, affective, which is emotional in this kind of way. Um, and so, yeah, in that way, we are sort of sim- simple creatures, Um, and that we can turn on this other side of our mind when we need to, but that is painful. It's hard to do. Some people do it better than others, but we all mostly gravitate to to system one. To to answer your question, so the tip I have is... um, is this notion of so there's these kind of two ways that you can go about making a decision one is that you can maximize you can try to make the perfect decision i'm going to order the perfect meal i'm going to get the perfect car i'm going to get you know we're going to plan the perfect vacation and then the other one is a, is um to be satisficing which is to to get a, a meal that's good enough a car that's good enough a vacation that's good enough in in that way the nice thing about the, the world that we live in right now from a marketing perspective. So people like to hate, hate on marketers because they think of advertising. Um, but really, good marketing is about solving people's problems and doing it in a way that is cheap, that is reliable, that is easy to, to find a solution to a problem. And in that way, marketing is really good for people's lives and has gotten really, really good these days. And so one of the nice things, that the way I kind of think about it is almost anything I buy to solve a a problem I have is probably good enough if I use just a small, like, very easily accessible information in the marketplace. So that might be using consumer reports or some sort of, uh, you know, Yelp rating system or whatever it may not lead you to the absolute perfect restaurant, it may not lead you to the absolute perfect car, but it's gonna lead you away from these that are not so good to these that are good enough, right? And so you can kind of say, uh, you know, like, I think this is the best bet, but even if it's not the best bet, it's still gonna satisfy me beyond most of my, my, my desires in that way. And so taking a sort of satisficing mindset, adding the, the ability to get data in a way that we weren't able to before, can ease your decision making and make you feel comfortable with your decisions as you consume this thing?
1: That's
0: a good enough answer. Ah. You hey. well uh, yeah. set him up. Oh, my God. Um, I, it's funny, when, when, uh, when Lawrence started talking, I thought he was going to say, I study well-being, and it makes me miserable. <laughs> and I'm happy that wasn't the case. Um, yeah, again, individual differences. In my personal life, the things that make me the most happy are, are uh, just like getting out of my comfort zone and taking lots of chances. I'm a bit of an adrenaline junkie, and I'm kind of a crazy person, and I like taking big swings at life. Gets me in all sorts of trouble. But monotony gets me in more trouble. When I get when I when I start getting a little bored uh, in life, that is real bad news. I I either am miserable or making lots and lots of, uh, of mistakes. So I just uh, I just create challenges um, for myself as, as much as I can. I don't really think too much about the money involved or anything like that. I just I just I'm like anything that makes me a little nervous. I'm like oh yeah, I want to do that um, and. And that, that's that's also why I like spending so much time with Pete because Pete has like awesome like habits and has a shit together and I ask, whoa how do
1: you do that <laughs>
6: and then
0: I go like wingsuit fucking dumping he's like what the fuck how do you and so we're a good balance um but uh all right last question question Matt no pressure
3: yeah um, I just want to know what role does gratitude have in finding a Meaningful and happy life. Oh,
0: I'm so happy you asked that. <laughs> Thank you for yeah. asking that question. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I am exceptionally grateful.
5: Uh, yeah. I, I um, think Lawrence, uh, Lawrence, you should take this one. Yeah. Um. <laughs> so um, there is definitely there's some work on gratitude, um, definitely impacting people's happiness. Uh, work on gratitude suggests that uh, express those expressions help us connect with other people and and we have some work that suggests that our social relationships are super important or can be um, incredibly important for our well-being. Um, They're definitely um, important for just helping us get things done, right? So um, the the nice thing about being a human is we figured out a way to coordinate with each other um, and not simultaneously want to kill each other and I think that gratitude plays a plays a big role in sort of keeping that social glue together. So that um, when people don't pull their weight, when people uh, inadvertently slight you, and someone steps out of line, the first instinct isn't um, murder. <laughs> so I'm
4: um, well said. I. Um, uh, you know, we are in the meat machines so I think uh, I w- I'll add to this one of the things I think that's really fascinating about the gratitude work is that it it really shifts these these reference points so we were talking about which way you look are you looking up are you looking down in this way and gratitude often al- allows you to sort of look inward um, and to be focused on the good things in life right so so act so think so behaving in a way that is grateful, thinking about the things that you're grateful for, turns your attention to positive things in life. And, and there's no doubt that that's beneficial for us. What I think is interesting, too, I'll add, is that, that really the work um, on gratitude is, is, obviously, these are not like a one-time intervention, that you just sit down and, do, and think about, about what you're, you're grateful for, but it actually is sort of a practice, that is that you sort of train yourself that your orientation is towards the good things in life. The fact that the glass is the glass is half full in that way. Um, I think the, the the closely related research to this is the work on um, on mindfulness and loving kindness and um, and meditation, which is practice based and which when I read the research um, just completely blew my mind because I've been living in Boulder for many years and I have I always had like kind of Hippy dippy people be like, oh, let, you know, you should do some mindfulness, and I'm like, yeah, whatever. And then, uh, and then I like, read wait, hippy dippy people where, exactly? <laughs> <laughs> and then I, and then I like read the study where they like randomly assign people to loving kindness meditation, and after three weeks, like they report living a, 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 you know, a better life. And so I'm, so I like emailed the, the, I emailed the researcher. I was like, where can I get that CD? And uh, <laughs> And, uh, and I started doing it and indeed it works but the only way that it works is that you, you make it a regular practice you know six, seven days a week spending the time doing it in the same way that you, that almost anything that good comes from um, like pursuing sort of positive behaviors on a regular basis.
0: Well it's also a, a difference of, of like because we're these kind of bottomless pits of want and there's a, you know you try to get in more and more stuff and it just never seems to fill up Whereas generosity is this outward, um, it, it's just having a different psychological effect altogether. And uh, the hell if I know exactly uh, how, how why it works, even, even with seeing some of the, the research, because the way it seems to work, like if you ask a scientist and the way that it feels are two different. I remember speaking of like adrenaline junkie stuff, I've taken a lot of chances in my life. But a few months ago, I picked up a hitchhiker, um, which is just like, it wasn't that big of a chance, but it was a chance. Uh, I was in Portland, and they had a sign, like, going to California. I was like, I'm driving to California. Picked up a hitchhiker, normally wouldn't. And I felt so good. It wasn't that fucking big of a a deal. He would have been picked up by a trucker or something five minutes later. It it doesn't matter at all. But that made me feel so... That I was able to get this kid eight hours toward where he wanted to go or whatever compared to... uh, Along, uh, you know, right after that, I went and did shows and, you know... did really well and got laughs and money for it and everything, everything like that. My and job. and that did simple that simple act of like doing just uh, just something for someone else had a much much bigger um, influence on. And a lasting influence on i still i'm fucking talking about it's like three months ago and i'm still up here like bragging about this wonderful thing that i did here. and um <laughs> you know, I, 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 go so on I went, tell us more uh, and 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 uh things like um uh things like uh doing doing this podcast which i i from the from the very start i went about I'm um, trying to separate this from like making money and having this just be a fun little pet project because I real, like, s- money kind of ruins stand-up for me. Um, and it kinda, when you take what you love and turn it into work, you start hating the things that you love. And, uh, and so I wanted to protect that with this. And, uh, and this is harder than most anything that I do, and I have to stand up here and sound like an idiot in front of people much smarter than me and uh and it's still one of the more fulfilling things um that i do and so i really very much appreciate you guys coming out tonight and supporting this how about a hand for peter mcgraw and lawrence williams everybody thank you guys i've been meat machine have uh, have a wonderful night and and come say hi we'll be hanging out for a few minutes too so if you have another question Hope you enjoyed the episode, everybody. Sorry for the delay on on the release of it. I've been at the Psychedelic Science Conference 2017, the the biggest um, psychedelic conference that there's ever been in the world, and so that was exciting. And I had uh, I I had a hotel room that we turned into a studio. Um, whipped up the beds and everything, completely changed the room into the studio to make it really convenient. So we just got tons and tons of guests, tons of researchers, just one right after another. Um, So we got tons of amazing content for the documentary and got connected with some people to uh, to, um, be a guinea pig and some um, interesting um, studies and things like that. Uh, more details soon I'm not going to give the whole thing away but uh, I I will for now we'll just say I'm real excited and I've been having a blast doing it and I think it's going to be great so thank you to um, all the new Patreon contributors um, there's people uh, someone gave me $25 thanks Cole and then people give as low as uh, as a dollar I think that's probably um the the minimum that it lets you give but anyway do, a dollar to twenty five dollars um a month is uh every every one of those helps out tremendously um <laughs> documentary is already already costing more than um more than expected which was kind of expected that it was going to cost more than expected but it's paradoxical
5: Let's say uh Seinfeld was on an island and he was blowing <laughs> Boris Karloff. What would it what would that be like?
3: <laughs> it might go something like this. Oh, Mr. Karloff, I loved you and Frankenstein, and I love giving you a blow jump. Why, Mr. Seinfeld, I'd love having you.